Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, May 30th through Saturday, June 1st, feature guest conductor Matthias Pincher and the Joffrey Ballet. The program includes Rossini's Overture to the Barber of Seville, two works by Maurice Ravel, Mother Goose, and Pavan for Dead Princess. And the Joffrey Ballet joins the orchestra for two ballet performances to music by Igor Stravinsky, the Dunbarton Oaks Concerto in E-flat, and a suite from Pulcinella. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Stravinsky's Concerto in E-flat major for chamber orchestra Dunbarton Oaks. The performance time, around 15 minutes. A magnificent federal-style house, Dunbarton Oaks, sits on the crest of a wooded valley near Washington, D.C. After Mr. and Mrs. Robert Woods Bliss bought the estate in 1933, it immediately became the scene of regular musical soirees. At the time, Mr. Bliss, a former ambassador to Argentina, was chairman of the visiting committee of the Harvard Music Department, and his wife, Mildred, was an unusually astute music lover, patron of the arts, and cultural maven. Sir Kenneth Clark called her the Queen of Georgetown. The great music room at Dunbarton Oaks, with its tapestries and paintings, including El Greco's The Visitation, and its grand piano, autographed by Jan Paderewski, a family friend, was the scene of many concerts hosted by the Blisses. It was their idea to commission Stravinsky to write a chamber orchestra work that would be premiered in this room to celebrate their 30th wedding anniversary. Stravinsky visited Dunbarton Oaks in 1937 before he started composing, and he is said to have been influenced in his design of the piece by the perfect layout of the Blisses' elaborate formal gardens. When his publisher later asked him about the work, Stravinsky called it a little concerto in the style of the Brandenburg concertos. Bach's scores had already served as a general model for the violin concerto Stravinsky had composed six years earlier. Now they became a more direct source of inspiration. I played Bach very regularly during the composition of the concerto, Stravinsky later recalled, and I was greatly attracted to the Brandenburg concertos. Whether or not the first theme of my first movement is a conscious borrowing from the third of the Brandenburg set, however, I do not know. What I can say is that Bach would most certainly have been delighted to loan it to me. To borrow in this way was exactly the sort of thing he liked to do. Bach's spirit does hover over the Dunbarton Oaks Concerto, although despite the efforts of Stravinsky's detractors at the time, no real case can be made for plagiarism or even affectionate imitation. René Leibowitz publicly attacks Stravinsky's insolent borrowing from Bach. The essence of Stravinsky's style in the 1930s and the mark of his genius throughout his career is the way he absorbed the music that influenced him, from circus marches to Beethoven's symphonies, and made it his own. If the 18th century does seem to come alive in the pages of the Don Martin Oaks Concerto, it's seen from the vantage point of someone who also knew about Amelia Earhart, electric typewriters, color photographs, Pablo Picasso, and the Golden Gate Bridge and its box vocabulary interpreted by someone who spoke the modern language of Pierrot Lunaire, La Mer, and, of course, the Rite of Spring. Like most of Bach's concertos, Stravinsky's has three movements in the inevitable arrangement of two fast movements surrounding a slower one. The movements follow each other without pause, linked by quiet chordal cadences. 
Echoes of the Brandenburgs are everywhere from the bustling figuration, spare sonorities, and textbook counterpoint to its concerto grosso-like textures shifting back and forth from one group of musicians to another. But there isn't a measure of the score that Bach would recognize, and Stravinsky's boasting to the contrary, this has nothing to do with the neighborly borrowing that Bach and his contemporaries enjoyed on a regular basis. Stravinsky has reinvented the Baroque concerto from the ground up, and the Don Barton Oaks concerto is an object lesson in the distinction between superficial resemblance and deeper artistic ties. Throughout his career, Stravinsky was music's greatest chameleon and a master of disguise. Perhaps that's why, as the composer Alfredo Casella pointed out, the main theme of this second movement quotes Verdi's Falstaff, who says that if he were to change his looks, he would no longer be himself. Program notes by Philip Husher on the Dunbarton Oaks Concerto by Igor Stravinsky. And now on to music from Pulcinella by Igor Stravinsky, the suite lasting about 20 minutes. How odd Stravinsky's Pulcinella must have sounded in 1920. Charming, witty, disarmingly simple 18th century music from the man who had shocked Paris only seven years earlier with the fierce modernism of the Rite of Spring. But Pulcinella was also in its own way radical. Stravinsky seemed to be saying that the music of the future might well learn from the lessons of the distant past. Pulcinella is usually credited as the first music of neoclassicism. It did certainly signal a shift in Stravinsky's own thinking that served him well for years to come. Pulcinella was my discovery of the past, the composer wrote, the epiphany through which the whole of my late work became possible. It was a backward glance, of course, he later said, but it was a look in the mirror, too. For all its importance to Stravinsky's musical development, the idea for Pulcinella was not his, but that of the great Russian impresario Sergei Diaghilev. By 1919, Diaghilev and the young composer were no longer on the best of terms, and Diaghilev was determined to patch up their differences and revive the collaboration that had produced the Firebird, Petrushka, and the Rite of Spring. One spring afternoon, when he and the composer were strolling in the Place de la Concorde, he proposed that Stravinsky take a look at some 18th-century scores with the idea of orchestrating them for a ballet. When he said that the composer was pergolazy, I thought he must be deranged, Stravinsky later remembered, thinking unhappily of the Stabat Mater and the opera La Serva Padrona. Finally, Stravinsky promised to at least take a look. I looked and I fell in love, the composer recalled. And so the two men began to plan. Diaghilev showed Stravinsky a manuscript dating from 1700, which he had found in Italy. The subject of its many comic episodes was Pulcinella, the traditional hero of the Neapolitan Commedia dell'arte, and a perfect focus for the action of their own 18th-century ballet. Meanwhile, Stravinsky had been sifting through the pile of manuscripts that Diaghilev had thrust in his hands, picking and choosing among trio sonatas, assorted orchestral works, and operatic selections, some of which not even by Pergolesi, as we have since learned. 
Then Stravinsky set to work in a fashion entirely new to him. I began by composing on the Pergolesi manuscripts themselves, as though I were correcting an old work of my own, he later wrote. I knew that I could not produce a forgery of Pergolesi because my motor habits are so different. At best, I could repeat him in my own accent. What Stravinsky created was, in fact, something entirely his own. He left Pergolesi's bass lines and melodies alone, but the inner harmonies, the rhythms, and the sonorities all bear Stravinsky's stamp in one measure after another. The remarkable thing about Pulcinella, Stravinsky later said, is not how much but how little has been added or changed. His achievement, then, is all the more remarkable. The music was misunderstood from the first rehearsals. Diaghilev, expecting a harmless adaptation like Respighi's recent tribute to Rossini, La Boutique Fantasque, was shocked. He went about for a long time with a look that suggested the offended 18th century. Diaghilev was not even sure whether to acknowledge Stravinsky as the composer of Polchinella or merely as its arranger. Stravinsky had the last word. I was attacked for being a Pasticheur, chided for composing simple music, blamed for deserting modernism, accused of renouncing my true Russian heritage. People who had never heard of or cared about the originals cried sacrilege. The classics are ours. Leave the classics alone. To them all, my answer was and is the same. You respect. I love. The ballet had its premiere at the Paris Opera House in May 1920. The choreography was by Alinin Massin with scenery and costumes by Picasso. The collaboration of these two had been part of Diaghilev's lure. This was Picasso's third assignment for Diaghilev, following Parade with music by Eric Satie and Manuel de Falla's The Three-Cornered Hat. This dream collaboration was no picnic, however. Diaghilev asked Picasso to redo the designs twice, and at one point threw his drawings on the floor and stomped on them. In the end, according to Diaghilev biographer Richard Buckle, the finished result, a Neapolitan street scene conceived in cubist terms and painted blue, gray, dark brown, and white, the houses framing a view of the bay with a boat, Vesuvius, and the full moon is one of the most beautiful stage settings ever made. The stunning white floor had to be repainted for each performance. Pulcinella was a triumph, one of those productions, the composer reported, where everything harmonizes, where all the elements, subject, music, dancing, and artistic setting, form a coherent and homogeneous whole. Yet only the music endures today. According to the composer, Picasso's backdrop ended up in storage at the Paris Opera, where it faded irrevocably, save for the moon, quote, whose yellow had been renewed in part by a cat. In his old age, Stravinsky said that Pulcinella was the only work of Pergolesi's that he really liked. Program notes by Philip Pusher on Pulcinella by Igor Stravinsky. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.